Hello and welcome to Pass to Power, the political podcast, our fifth episode, and I'm Matt Cooper. And I'm Ivan Yates. Okay, we've lots of things to get through on the agenda today. We're going to be talking about RTE, the political danger of the forthcoming referendum, uh, what a Trump presidency could mean for Ireland, the liberalisation of our drug laws, and how we deal with symbols when it comes to a 32-county Ireland and getting Northerners happy with that. And we might talk about David Norris exiting the Shannon as well, and maybe other things will come up as we go along the way. You love talking about RT, though. Do. RT, of course, that stands for Responsibility Taken Elsewhere. <laughs> the board is safe. The Minister, Catherine Martin, has decided, despite the fact that it showed an enormous lack of inquiry about an event that it knew was going on, Toy Show the Musical, and then all of them seemed to have the same excuse. Fait accompli when it was presented to them. They all remain in place. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, uh, I do have some inside sources in this regard. My overall position is that RTE is the biggest Titanic in the history of the state. And Captain Backhurst and the orchestra is still playing and they are blithely going to sink without trace within the next five years. Uh, they are living on the latest transfusion of cash, 56 million, but they are technically insolvent without state support and it's over. On this specific issue, Toy Show the Musical. First of all, a head did roll. Uh, Rory Coveney did take responsibility uh, for it. But he clearly, though, wasn't the only person responsible. This goes way beyond one individual. Okay. Well, let's talk. So, my experience in in dealing, because I would have had about, as Minister, five or six semi states from Kielce to the Racing Board, right across uh, and so on. The chairman and the CEO are the only people you invite to Christmas drinks. They're the ones who actually are totally liaising with the department and minister and respond. And everybody else is is basically collateral damage. So in this case, in this case, uh, these new members of the board were four months on the board when this actual decision was taken. The facts and the Grant Thornton report shows that the board was not told about this, did not approve it. And this actually, because we've had mass confusion, deliberately, from Marty's car to flip-flops, we have evaded the single lesson of the whole worst episode in their history, which is that Moya Darty, as chairperson of the organisation, and Dee Forbes, as CEO, in any commercial organisation, have to bear the primary responsibility. And in this case, what I'm looking at, even despite the redacted elements, and even despite what I'm told is them lawyering up against the GT report. The fact of the matter is culpability, responsibility lies primarily, in my view, it didn't go to the audit committee with Moya Doherty. Okay, there's a couple of other things though that I've seen in relation to this. Um, I think the five board members who have been let off effectively, those who were still on the board who had been there at the time, are very fortunate because the role of a board is not just literally to not off on the agenda that has been given to them is to ask questions about what's going on in the organisation and to find out about something that had had a lot of publicity. Why are we doing this? What's the risk assessment? What if this could go wrong? What are the reputational as well as financial issues involved? And then to actually say, well, it's gone too far, we can do nothing about it. And also then not sign off on it or not reject it suggests I think some of them may have realised there was something askew here. But more important than that, this isn't the worst scandal in RTE. Neither was the whole Ryan Tuberty pay affair. Mm. Although that was also, although that was executive dealing with uh, agent, Noel Kelly, and that was a different issue. 
The real problem in relation to all of that was how it was handled, brought into the public domain, and that's for the current board and even the current chair to answer questions as to the way that that was botched when it was actually being disclosed. And even that, again, is not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is bogus self-employment. The idea that the Department of Social Welfare is conducting an investigation into RTE over what happened between 2019 and 2021, having already conducted a previous investigation and having negotiated a settlement, that there were 700 people affected by this. 700 people in a state-funded and state-controlled organisation Bogus self-employment. If that happened in the private sector, there would be hell to pay. And you know what's going to happen? And there is a contingent liability. There there. is. And who'll pay that? The state will pay it. To the revenue commissioners. But but let's be clear. The fundamental problem is, even in the time that Backhurst has been there as CEO, leaving his previous tenure uh, in uh, Montrose, the expenditure and the publisher model issues have not been grasped and that basically the government decided and you know this talk about a 15 euro a month broadband tax. No they won't do that they've already ruled it out. (laughs) Will they imperil themselves for those losers in Montrose? Not a chance. But hold on there is an issue here and this goes back there has been no licence fee increase since 2008. It's been stuck at 160 quid despite inflation. It won't I know it won't but there have been efforts. Noel Curran a former Director General of RT made serious efforts to try and have a reform about making sure that RT fulfilled a public service remit but that money was shared with the commercial sector and it's been clear since around 2008 that the world's media landscape has changed dramatically. The government has commissioned reports, it's looked at, it has done nothing. So it's now kicking the can down the road to the next government to deal with this. So a situation rather than actually reforming the licence fee or putting a new structure in place Or, or, or 900 redundancies, that's what's required. When I see 900 redundancies, I'll believe they're taking this seriously. I believe it's politics and business as usual inside Montrose and the rest of the issues have been put in the long finger. And this is just another controversy. But in my view, this worst episode over a five, six year period has to be laid at the door of two women, Moya Doherty and D Forbes. OK, but I want to ask you a question. And I say this as somebody who works exclusively in the commercial sector. We do need an RT, though, for public service broadcasting. We, we can do a certain amount in Today FM, you used to do it in News Talk. We do work together in doing a current affairs programme on Virgin Media. But what the commercial stations offer will not be enough, will it? We do need an RT. But then how much do RT trade off on the things that... Primetime o- investigates only, or something like that. Only we can do it. Yeah, no, well, first of all, uh, repeats of EastEnders and so much stuff they do is not public service broadcasting. It's commercial broadcasting. They're the biggest player in the advertising market. They have every advantage. They had a heritage audience. The fact of the matter is, and even seeing Joe Duffy coming out against the cash machine, and I can say this openly because I'm not working in the Bauer Group, the fact of the matter is they'd begrudge the few shillings that the Virgin Media and uh, News Talk and others have to live off of. And the, the reality is RTE are bullies in the commercial market. And you know what? Uh, I, I actually have no sympathy. And, and I put it like this. The politicians just want this to go away and it'll be a matter for the next government. Let's talk about real bullies. Let's talk about Donald Trump and the likelihood that he is going to be returned to the White House as the next president. 
Likelihood as things stand, I believe an awful lot what, could change. What draw you touching to now? That events, dear friend, events. <laughs> he has four criminal trials, right? Yeah. Uh, he's going to win the Supreme Court appeal on not being on the ballot paper in two states. Uh, all of that is not going to stop him from being the next president. He has the Republican nomination. Uh, he has an 81-year-old in Biden who, who at any point in time... I'm sorry, the whole problem here is the lack of succession planning in the Democratic Party. That is... the you know, if, if Trump gets elected, that is the reason. But put it oh, like sorry, this. Tr- tr- Biden's strongest hope of getting re-elected is running against Trump rather than running against anyone else. Because as happened in 2020, there will be a lot of people who will look at the idea of Trump becoming president again as appalling and as something that has to be stopped. And they are more likely to come out through clenched teeth to vote for Biden. I get that point. But the point is this. Well, I was looking at Biden's sort of soft launch of his campaign. And he said, the reason I'm standing again is to stop this menace of, of, of Trump. Sorry, the, the most important reason you're standing is not what you're going to do for people on housing, on standards of living, on the economy or whatever. To actually cede to your opponent that you are actually reacting to them is crazy campaigning. You've got to have a positive message of why people should vote for you, whether it be young or old or whatever, healthcare or whatever. But the fact of the matter is this, saying like that, that's a bit like someone saying, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. You know what I mean? It'll get you so far, but it mightn't get you over the line. I see though your old political mate Phil Hogan was out this week warning about the dangers for Ireland if Trump gets elected. You know, I know there are a lot of people who say, you know, why are you so obsessed with Trump? It's over there. It doesn't matter to us. Well, it matters for all sorts of reasons in this trend towards autocracy, which is very, very dangerous for democracy globally, if that's the way the United States going, like a third world tin pot dictatorship. But if we just be more selfish as Mm. to the economic consequences for Ireland, Phil Hogan was interesting on the possibility of a trade war and that we would get very badly caught up in that, particularly our pharma industry. Yeah. Well, first of all, I I can absolutely detach Ireland's interest in this. I think since JFK, you know, Obama and Reagan pretended to be Irish, but actually Biden is the most Irish president. You know, everything about his DNA, even the way he talks about the Brits, he is bona fide. So we're not going to have someone in the White House. You left out John F. Kennedy. No, I said no, since since JFK. No, absolutely. So the point I'm making is that, that absolutely in Ireland's interest, Biden is a plus. But if you look at Trump's agenda, first of all, I keep saying the most economic important fact in Ireland is the 24 billion of corporation tax. If you take Apple, Microsoft and all of those, Google and so on, it's 24 billion. Now, as you just said, right, first of all, he's going to lower the corporation tax rate in the US from 25 to 15 percent, which is the same rate that they now pay in Ireland. Secondly, he's going to reintroduce an amnesty to bring the dollars home, which will actually make boardrooms think uh, about uh, coming home. And that is absolutely essential. And the third thing, which you've just alluded to, is the reintroduction of protectionism, import tariffs. And on every count, this imperils our FDI, hardcore, juicy, you know, uh, golden geese laying all these eggs. The other thing that I think is, is, is probably the most significant is what will he do if he gets in about Zelensky and Ukraine? I think 
Europe is going to be, I think, is almost going to withdraw from NATO. He's going to have an isolation policy and Europe are actually going to have to have their own defence policy. You see, I, the problem here is exacerbated by the fact that one of the major scandals of his previous presidency was when he tried to put leverage on Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden's son's involvement in Hunter, Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, some of this has been deliberately overblown by Biden's critics. But let's just take the Zelensky thing. That is clear as well that one of the things Trump tries to say is he doesn't want to get involved in what's going on in the rest of the world. He's an isolationist. Mm. Which goes and, down well with working class Americans. Absolutely. So They don't want to be the world's policemen. No, they don't. So if you have a situation where, and he did threaten before to reduce his America's contribution to NATO, didn't go ahead with it. He, basically, he, he's going to do an awful lot of things which must have Vladimir Putin licking his yeah, lips in anticipation. No and, and, and that and creates... And, an, it could you, and also China. China will be licking their lips, all of which will enfeeble Europe. But then where do Ireland fit in in this? Because we very much are determined to remain not part of NATO, to remain neutral. There's been always a degree of hypocrisy in relation to this. We're happy enough to effectively shelter under the NATO umbrella without making a contribution so you want to towards join it. NATO, you? I didn't say that. I'm just highlighting <laughs> I'm highlighting the yeah. reality of the situation. But you're not following your own logic. Is but that no, it? <laughs> what I'm saying is is that we will come under increasing pressure at the European Union that if we're part of the European Union, we will be expected to be part of NATO as well. And only this week... Tur- so you, no free ride? Is that no free ride. I think, yeah, I mean, even this week, Turkey has agreed for Sweden to become involved. More and more you know, countries in Europe who had avoided going into NATO... But we're are not a superpower. A few tin pot tanks from Ireland and Kildare is not, not going to change the world. That's not You're not going to have but Putin losing sleep do. at night. That's not... Actually, I think where the pressure will come under, on us will be for cybersecurity... Because okay. wars will be fought not just with armaments, but with cybersecurity. And given our role within the EU, we will, and given the location of all of these American tech giants in Ireland, we will come under enormous pressure. And things like we've always sort of done it in the Irish way, the backhanded way, such as making Shannon Airport available for flights. Which I'm, I'm, I don't have a problem with. Do you have a problem with that? I'm only highlighting the issue without <laughs> expressing it. Let them drop in, let them drop out as long as they pay their dues. Can I say yeah, but sorry, one the point other... is, we will be put under pressure. Yeah, by I, the and I think that isn't the problem. But I don't think you're going to see Irish people being conscripted and going to fight no. in the European army. But there's one other elephant in the room which nobody has mentioned, irrespective of Biden or Trump. But I think especially with, with, with Trump. The elephant in the room in American politics is their national federal government debt is $34 trillion. It's 123% of the GMP. And they falsified the figures because everyone else's GMP, including Japan, a debt ratio includes pension liabilities. Canada and, and, and America took that out. There is the real chance that America could default on their debt. Well, they just print more dollars. It's the strongest currency in the world. They just keep printing money. And uh, that isn't a kind of permanent solution. That is a sticking plaster solution. But I honestly think there's not enough analysis in this whole thing. Is any of the candidates promising to curb the debt? Okay. You know what day March the 8th is, don't you? Tell me. Ah, Ivan, come on. A progressive man like yourself. I'm it's hard inter- set to remember the 17th of March. It's International Women's Day. And that's <laughs> why, <laughs> that is why we're having the referenda okay. on the March the 18th of changing, 
Article 41 of the Constitution, particularly the provision... So you're voting yes or no? I never state which way I vote in anything. I'm strictly neutral. And even, even you're going alien, to get blisters on your arse from that fence you're sitting does not on. Know the barbed wire must be cutting voted. through your jeans at this stage. Oh, see, I'm still a working broadcaster and I can't express <laughs> an opinion one way or the other when I was so, so, hosting so. debates on the removal of one aspect of Article 41 and the change to others. The Article 41, the bit that's been removed, I think is often wrongly referred to as the re- reference to women in the home. Mm. It's more detailed than that. But yet, the argument is developing. There's, there's a, a culture war starting to develop in relation to this. Is this a real mistake by the government to belatedly go for the removal of this clause, which has been debated for the last 30 years, and you must have been in cabinet mm. at a time when this was discussed, to finally do it at a time when, unfortunately, the so-called culture wars are flourishing globally. And this might give people a foothold in Ireland using this as a wedge issue. Well, uh, despite the inconvenience and the vicissitudes, the government's job is to govern. And absolutely, I think there's an element to tokenism, doing it on International Women's Day and so on. But in fairness, I actually, because you told me you're going to talk about this, there are four changes that are happening, but you'll get two ballot papers, one to Article 41 and one to Article 42. And there's two elements to this. One is to delete the offending uh, woman in the home thing, and of which course, is not the exact expression. Exactly, exactly, and and you know the, the but it's a useful shorthand. Absolutely, and look, you know, you, you, the constitution was put together in 1937. We had an unthinkable nowadays marriage ban, where if a woman got married, she had to quit the. Civil but that service. wasn't a constitutional issue, absolutely. and in fact, it was removed in legislation without requiring a constitutional amendment. So the point is, there, there's history here and it, it, this needs to be rectified. Sorry, the, the history is Archbishop McQuaid yeah. co-wrote the Constitution with Eamon de Valera. And there's a certain degree... And of, you're saying he's a misogynist? He was. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was about putting women Were in their place. Were both of them misogynists? Probably. <laughs> right. So, can I, I, I remember having a discussion about this. I don't know if you remember. Senator Joe O'Toole, he was the famous teachers union yes, leader who became Joe, the boss yeah. of ICTU and actually famously said that benchmarking was like going to an ATM That's machine. Right. But Joe, I developed a friendship with Joe and he has a boat on the Shannon, which I've never gone on. But he said to me, he said, a lot of this feminist agenda misses the point. And I can actually relate to because I'm married 38 years to Deirdre. Every single important decision, how many kids we'd have, when we'd have them, where we'd send them to school, not to speak of every aspect of our home, is it her decision? And he so made the point to me. You're a weak no, man, no, no, are no, you? No, 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 sorry, <laughs> sorry. I have to pay to keep the show on the road, but the, the point oh, of... Oh, God, no, no, you know no, how no, that sounds. No, 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 that's just true. That's <laughs> sorry, my role. Sorry, but like, fair so, to say, Deirdre worked all her life as a teacher, didn't no, she? No, I wish she did. <laughs> but the point is this, she's not working now and she's eligible. But leaving that uh, bugbear uh, aside, he made the point when he was brought up in Kerry, the most influential people in a community, in a family, were actually women. And I think it degrades women to, to, to reduce them because of their primary role in the whole home and their primary parenting role. That's not important. You know the old saying, she who rocks the, the cradle rules the world. So that's the first thing. I don't accept a lot of the feminist stereotypes about this. But we have now a situation that women at work earn more than their husbands uh, and the stay-at-home factor is becoming more fluid. So 
I am going to vote yes to both. I'm not going to be beset because I remember this. The likes of you, smart shock jocks on the radio and all these journalist types, there came up a simple referendum, a simple referendum to give the Oireachtas more powers to have inquiries because we'd had really expensive tribunals and it was a no-brainer of common sense. And Michael McDougall and all the AGs, oh my God, there'll be people under the bed and people attacked in their home. And these AGs convinced people to vote no. It was beaten, in, I think it was around 2010, by 116,000 votes and it was a wrong-headed decision. So everyone who tries to bounce me into, oh, it could have this uh, implication that no one ever thought of and it's a leap into the dark and the unknown. Look, these, these, these trouble blazers uh, need to be disregarded and let's just do the sensible thing. I know it's inconvenient to go into the ballot. I would have had it the same day as the other elections, but let's okay, just but hold do on, it. Hold on, is there not an issue in relation to Article 42 and this definition of a durable relationship? Well, explain. What's your problem? I know what a durable relationship is. Is it? Is, yeah. it, is it like ours in this program here? <laughs> no, that is not the durable. <laughs> no, that wouldn't qualify. I can assure you, a durable relationship where there's a level of commitment, whether it's to paying a mortgage, whether it's to rearing a kid, and you know what, it can hit a rock on the road. But I think I know what a durable relationship looks like, whether it's same sex or whatever. Uh, when I meet it. Okay, but you think that's a firm and enough definition? I think I trust judges. I think I trust judges to not dance on the head of a pin and make common sense solutions. Which to that. we had only this week in relation to a social welfare claim. There was a couple with three children. She, they were not married. She died. He claimed the widower's pension. He was denied it. He had to fight to go to the Supreme Court, but he got it. And, and, that, and it's a correct decision. But it had to go all the way to the Supreme yeah, Court to yeah, make no, a correct I, decision. I accept that. So, so the, the point is this, we'll have all these naysayers out there, but fundamentally people have got to rely on, is this an improvement or a de- retrograde okay. step? And on balance, put it like this, the world got on fine with the, you know, constitution as it is. It's maybe overstated, but look, now that we're faced with a choice, let's make the right one. Okay, we will come back, I think, in nearer to the date to talk more about the issues involved and the politics of how it plays. Actually, I thought the most significant thing this week was the decision by both Sinn Féin and the Social Democrats to vote yes. So they're not playing politics with it to try and embarrass the government. So I think that's going to help enormously the potential for this to actually be passed, albeit with a certain degree of arguing, especially as broadcasters, we're going to be required to give 50-50 balance. Which is rubbish. Like, do you ever hear such a nonsensical thing? Like, where where you have an issue, this this obligation, to be fair, actually means every headbanger is going to walk into the Last Word studio. You still haven't plugged the book this week, but the point about it is this, that this is an invitation for chaos. And that, that put like this, I get the point, is that the McKenna judgment that you're so in favour of that brought that about, was it? You know, the McKenna judgment? Why are you yeah, making you, an you, assumption that I was in favour of No, it? no, no. And you, you know, you said the significance of the McKenna judgment yeah. was to ma- mean this even-handed approach. Sometimes which common sense makes, is a one-way street. Which also makes it at times very, very difficult to get people on both sides to be available for debate or has left a mother But it gives oxygen for, to things that don't make sense. Yeah, But I'll tell you one, of course, referendum that we had which was defeated and I think was a great shame that it was defeated was the 
abolition of the Shannet. I know you want to speak about David Norris. You think it should retirement. have been abolished? Absolutely, because wouldn't it have been great that when David Norris retired with his usual rhetorical flourish this mm-hmm. week, and I have to say, I think David is a very entertaining individual. Ah, has he's done, a national treasure. And has done an awful lot of good. Well, Cut him a bit of slack there. But sorry, the people of he's Ireland decided... years. The people of Ireland decided a little bit differently when given the opportunity to elect him president in 2018. That doesn't take it, look, not... not <laughs> look what we ended up with. But I leave sorry, that for another 20, day. Sorry, 2011. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but the, the point is this. Uh, whether he would have made it a good president, I don't know. But the truth of it is, he has added to the gaiety of the nation. He has done the state yeah. some service in relation to LGBT Absol- rights. Sorry, and no, but the point the le- about it... Through the legal process. And, yeah, no, no, and I, absolutely. Do, do we actually fund the Shannon to add to the gaiety of the nation to allow some people to either build up their political careers or to give them a semi-retirement home to indulge themselves in rhetorical flourishes. And the reason why I have never voted in a Shannon election... Because you're a graduate. I'm a graduate of UCC, which means I'm eligible to vote. But I haven't voted. And the reason I haven't voted is the whole idea is a nonsense that, first of all, you had to be a graduate of only a certain limited number of universities, not other third-level institutions. But you know what? Why should a third-level graduate have a vote and everyone else not have a vote? No, oh, sorry, that, that, that is undemocratic. But as it actually happens, when I think over the last 40 years of what senators made an impact... I would have to say it was nearly always the university panel centres, whether it was Fergal Quinn, whether it was uh, Joe Toole and different people. The truth is that... Shane Ross. Shane, I'd include, even people I disagree with it from time to time, one of the worst ever ministers for transport. He was indolent and he was lots of things. But the point about it is this. Indolent is a bit bit much now. Lazy is another more appropriate word. No, no, I would contest (laughs) that. No, but he's bright. I'll I'll give him that. I don't have that problem with his intellect is is very strong. But I put it like this. If If you were working in the RDS, and see how long he sat on the proposal. It, it actually was a 16 million proposal to redevelop it. It just sat on his desk and it's going to end up costing 40 million. He's to blame. So, but that's a digression. The, the Senate, the Senate, the problem with the Senate is that the majority of them are political hacks that are either former TDs that have lost his, their seat and need an income or a nursery for uh, people who are going argument. to, yeah, you know, You're repeating no, my so argument. The, sorry, don't throw the baby and the bathwater out. The fact that it is that in majority doesn't mean that it serves some purpose. And just mark my words, one of the interesting things about the Senate, which is a rarely used power by the Taoiseach of the day, is that a senator can be appointed to the cabinet. So, or a cabinet minister, James Duke, one of the innovations Garrett introduced, it was very unpopular within the party, but it actually brought someone a heavyweight as Minister for Foreign Affairs, albeit for a short time. Pippa Hackett is now a junior minister, uh, appointed as a senator uh, to be a junior minister. Mark my words, one of the most interesting developments this week was Michelle Gildrenew, uh, being uh, put forward. So she's a Stormont MP. She's a former Minister of Agriculture. She represents Fermanagh South Tyrone. And she is now running in the Midlands Northwest constituency. And, you know, she's the only candidate who will get elected. So what I'm now looking at in my world of Mary Lewis Taoiseach, she could appoint, and at that stage there could be an administration up north, Jerry Kelly, Minister for whatever, Justice in the North, a Minister for Justice in the South. Well, not the Fianna Fáil would agree to that, but Minister for whatever. And actually 
that is the type of thinking that Sinn Féin is actually really looking at. How they can sort of bring about a Trojan horse of United Ireland by people having dual ministries. So I would say watch this space. But I think the Senate is an opportunity to bring into politics people who would never get elected to the Dáil. And on balance, I think they add to the knowledge, the teasing out, the filtration of legislation. And look, yes, it's a bit of a trinket, but I think I would not be in favour of throwing, getting rid of it. OK, well, let's come back to this issue, though, of the North, because I did actually intend asking you about this Irish Times opinion poll that was done in relation to the potential for United Ireland. And if we did have a United Ireland, whether we would join the Commonwealth or whether we would change our national flag, change our national anthem, things like that, to be accommodating of those of a different political disposition from the North who would be joining the United Ireland. And it's what did this poll show? Well, it was actually really interesting in a couple of things. One of the things, first of all, is that I'm sort of surprised how the discussion of United Ireland has ebbed a little bit from how strong it was a couple of years ago. It was developing a certain degree of momentum and now seems to drop down the political agenda. And even Sinn Féin seem reluctant to make it clear that that it's its number one aspiration. They keep talking about housing and health and now mm-hmm. immigration, the things that will have helped get them elected. But I suspect that as soon as Sinn Féin are in power in the Republic, they will then, once in office, start claiming a mandate to push for United Ireland. Although that may not have necessarily be the reason that some people would have voted Sinn Féin. Anyway, this study by the Irish Times did something quite interesting. I'm not going to get into the mechanics and complications. Basically, they were against the tricolour, is that it? Well, sorry, it was a question of how you phrase the question. The Commonwealth one was fascinating because they took sample groups north and south of the border for discussion. And if you said to them, the, the Commonwealth is part of the British royalty, it's led by King Charles, it's for the ex-colonies, imperial, imperial all the rest of it, then people reacted badly against it. But if you point it out, I think it's 53 yeah, no, members. No, so there's 56 50, members. 56, 36 of them are independent republics. Absolutely. So they've elected presidents like us. So if all of those countries are part of it, why couldn't we be it? I mean, could we go from Michael D. Higgins when he retires as president of Ireland could become president of the Commonwealth? <laughs> well, that won't happen anyway. No, I think I think he, he's facing an endgame. And okay, look, but, you, he, but the, the, the point is, I suppose it's how you phrase the question. No, but, no, absolutely. But there, were, there was two things that really jumped out: the hostility of unionists, and it was actually interesting as well. Something that I wouldn't be particularly comfortable with: this automatic assumption when it comes to the North, you're Protestant, ergo you're unionist; you're Catholic, therefore you're nationalist. When I'd imagine that religious observance in the North, while it might be somewhat stronger an attachment than it is in the South, it shouldn't be defining as to your politics. But so on, in the North, they didn't like the tricolour. They don't like uh, sham, shamrock and stuff. I don't think they got no, too they, much. No, they didn't have as big a problem with the shamrock, shamrock as they no. did the tricolour. Okay, yeah. down here we have a problem with the Red Hand, even though the Red Hand is associated with loyalist terrorism. It's also used by the GA in Ulster. Um, it just struck me, what accommodations and changes do we have to make and and bring your religion into it mm. given that you were one of the first or one of the rare Protestants in Church the of Ireland yeah. during your time I mean how do you feel about the tricolour the shamrock the commonwealth all of those things and you know do you feel as many unionists seem to feel they would be discriminated against in a 32 county Ireland did you ever feel as a Protestant discriminated against in this republic well 
when I was in my early 20s as a backbench government TD, uh, around about 82, I was approached to go on the Church of Ireland Synod, which is made up of lay people and, and bishops, which is the ruling body of the Church of Ireland North and South. And I kind of say, why, why am I on this? You know what I mean? But I actually didn't make much of a contribution, did it for about two years, but I observed the people from the North. And you know what I found? And this is a Southern Protestant perspective. Southern Protestants are dwindling. They were always max 5% or whatever. And they're pretty live and let live people. I found the Northern Protestants, and but Presbyterians would probably be worse, that they were more denominational than they were Christian. And you know what? I didn't like them. I didn't like them at all insofar as that they were more concerned. Oh, is this is this less Britishness or is this whatever? And there was a culture of domination and so on. And I think uh, the unionist uh, community have been really badly represented. Uh, they by choose the, their representatives. Oh, absolutely. They're entitled. To, but you take the latest hiatus with the DUP refusing to have any governance in Northern Ireland. Whether you resent the fact the IRA bombed you or shot you or whatever, RUC and all that troubles uh, baggage in the here and now they have an obligation to go into government and uh, and basically they don't want to take they don't want to make they don't want a Catholic as their first minister get over it the demographics are going to be clear on the other hand what accommodation would we make and I can only see I cannot see Northern Unionists sitting in Dáil Éireann. I can see two separate dual parliaments and them working closer together, both being in the single market. But the elephant in the room here, Matt, wake up, whether it's 16 billion or 20 billion sterling, it is a public sector economy, the six counties. It cannot sustain itself and I don't see any plan that it can. And you know what? There's no way we're going to write a cheque for that amount of money. And also, how do we persuade them all to join with the Republic if particularly Sinn Féin keeps saying the Republic is a basket case. And do we believe that by putting the two of them together that automatically they, they only believe the merger becomes it's, stronger? It's a basket case because of these establishment parties. Yeah, but hold on. You're still getting away from the questions I asked you. And that is, should we, if there was to be a united Ireland, which is still probably quite a way off, but might be quicker than we think, should we join the Commonwealth? Should no we? problem with that. Okay. I, on the basis that if it gives us a bit more trade with Nigeria, go for it. And then would you change the flag? Would you change no. the anthem? No, no. no. I think I think green and white is the is is the white in the middle between the two factions. Between the green and but the no, orange. but sorry, I'm actually not saying that whether it's eight hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand unions should be shoehorned into a republic. I'm against that. But but I do believe that we can have a dual administrative system that maybe is funded in a new way that maximizes trade north and south, that maximizes the island's economic possibilities, that has a common welfare and health standards. You know, you take something like if someone from uh, Donegal wants to get treatment in the Derry Hospital for paediatrics, like all that kind of common sense stuff needs to be done. But the point is this, uh, if you look at, the ma- major change in my lifetime, the Good Friday Agreement, 1998. Have the peace walls, you know, dividing in North Belfast, Protestant and Catholic been taken down? Oh God, there, there's, there's more of them. Exactly, that's my point. Uh, uh, has denominational education become, uh, you know, inter- interdenominational? No. The truth is the bitterness, the bigotry and the sectarianism has not healed in the last 25 years. Would you like them to be part of United Ireland? What is like this? I'm partitionist. I have no apology to saying that, you uh, know. How could you be partitionist? Would uh, you vote against United Ireland in a I referendum? I put it like this. If it was going to cost me 20 billion in a heartbeat, yes. 
you think many people think like that? Well, put it like this, they mightn't say it, but they'd be thinking it. If they said, Would you, well, not, would well, you not in a referendum have the emotional attachment to the idea of the reunification of our island, the 32 no, counties all of one no, again? No, so what I'm interested in is the standard of living of people, their jobs prospects, their economic prospects, the happiness to coexist, rearing their families. These are the basic things of life. Would that not, not be better? Emblems. Would that not be better provided for in the 32 county republic? Well, sorry, if that is the ultimate evolution and that does give that better solution and the sum of the parts is more, absolutely. But in the here and now, and in my, I'm 64 now, my perspective on this is that it's going to cause more problems. But I can see a situation where you could have a two-state approach and the northern state would not necessarily be 100% British. But who is going to pay for it is the kernel of the problem. OK, I want to move on to the drugs that don't work. Anyway, the... Um... I hear at uh, elite dinner parties in Ranala and adjoining areas in Dublin 6 that on a Friday night, instead of passing around the, 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 the cognac, they pass around the cocaine. Is this true? Because I don't live in that. I don't swim in that pool. I don't know. I don't know anyone in <laughs> Ranala myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your denial of responsibility I, and knowledge is I incredible. Have, I have never seen anyone pass around the cognac. <laughs> and I'm probably, well, that's not a crime. I've actually probably gotten to an age where I used to, in the Celtic Tiger era, observe uh, cocaine been widely used. I suppose now the fact that I'm older, my generation doesn't use it for fear of the health consequences of it. Although I do hear of people of my age who do, and I think they're absolutely insane to be risking their own health by taking it. And also would have an issue that you are effectively funding the drug gangs if you are starting but, to but, buy But them. you don't smoke and you rarely drink. I mean, like your pristine standard of health and service, you know, is just beyond most people's. But the, my Garda friends tell me that the younger generation don't drink alcohol the way I drink alcohol and my generation drinks alcohol with the exception of yourself. Uh, secondly, that you can actually visibly see uh, lads going to the toilets and yeah. they come back and their eyes are bulging. And sorry, this is all over Ireland. All, uh, it's this ubiquitous. Is, this Absolutely. is not a Dublin 6 issue no. for dinner parties, <laughs> as you said. This is a major issue. I have friends who are very involved in the GA in rural Ireland and they've had major issues with their teams training hard during the week and then after a game on a Sunday going out and it's not just for the few pints. It's the lines of coke as well. And it's, it's, the, it's the high of their choice. Yeah. And, and, and sorry, it is, it is so freely available. So we come to this report. What does it say? Yeah, this has been a very interesting Citizens' Assembly, yet another Citizens' Assembly, which has well, become... Well, can I say, I was a big sceptic of Citizens' Assembly, followed by an Oireachtas committee. And it actually has, I have to change my mind on this, it has actually found things that either politicians wouldn't care about because there wasn't enough votes in it. It actually has provided a modus operandi for complex issues to be changed. It has. So this Citizens' Assembly on drug use was chaired by Paul Reid, the former head of the HSE and one of the central figures in our COVID response as well. And between last April and October, it undertook a very, very serious piece of work. I think actually he and everyone else involved in the Assembly deserves a lot of credit for the time that they put in at weekends. They brought so many people into them uh, between of doctors, Gardaí, health workers, but very, very importantly as well, those who have been affected by drug addiction, which isn't just the users themselves, but their families. They heard mountains of evidence. And they have done something which is quite interesting. It's in two legs. One is that, very narrowly, they rejected 
the legalization of cannabis, which of course has happened in the United States and in Canada and other parts by one vote. So that left the government off the hook because if they voted gone the other way, then suddenly the government and the Oireachtas would have been under pressure that it didn't want as to allow for the legalization of cannabis. <clears throat> but what it has done and recommended is that you would have the uh, decriminalization of possession for personal use. So if you've got a big bag of coke that you're giving to other people or you're selling on, yes, that's still a criminal offence. If you have a small sachet for yourself or if you have a lump of grass or a bit of pot, whatever, then you get a caution of some kind. Or, well, you actually don't even get a caution. You don't have a, a legal thing hanging over you. You're sort of moved towards getting help. Now, there's a few things in relation to that. I'm not sure where the help will be provided because it's all very aspirational. Where are all the social workers, health workers going to be? The usual thing, we might provide the budget, but how long might you actually be waiting before you but actually But the, the get detoxing that and the methadone yes. is fairly straightforward to, to provide, it, 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 for That's for other types of drugs, okay. and that's fine. We're talking here a little bit, I'm talking more about the cannabis. But there were an awful lot of professionals went and argued strongly against the decriminalisation that as soon as you leave a little bit more leeway, people might be more inclined to use. Not as much as with legalisation, but still, if you feel there's going to be no impact on you if you're caught in possession of drugs, you might be able to do it. And the problem is, cannabis is not harmless. There's plenty of evidence, particularly in younger people, that it can do enormous damage, psychotic damage and the rest of it. And we have to be really cognizant of that as well. It's not the harmless drug that a lot of its advocates actually say it is. And further to that, one of the reasons why I think the legalisation thing has merits to it, ironically, is that at least you can regulate them. You can regulate the dosage size, you can regulate what goes into it. Too many people in the illegal market are buying drugs. They do not know what they are consuming. So this cocaine could be laced with rat poison. The cannabis that they're getting could be 20 times the strength of what was available when I was in, in my 20s. Market, yeah. In the black okay. And particularly now because it's been grown industrially in hothouses in Ireland. This is a very complex matter. But sorry, the key thing is Leo Varadkar has now said it's a public health issue rather than a criminal one. Very important. Big change. Big change from Michael McDowell as minister in 2006. He stopped the Gardaí uh, when they wanted to do something along these lines. And a big change even from 2019 when this was being proposed, decriminalisation, and though he didn't speak publicly about it, the understanding was that Charlie Flanagan, as Justice Minister, was very much against the idea of decriminalisation. Well, my, my take on this, because drugs have been around, you know, I remember when Pat Rabbit was appointed, you know, to chair a special subcommittee when I was in government on drugs and did a lot of work, because Intala in his constituency, a big issue. My Pavlovian response to all of this is any any concessions, any legalization, any decriminalization, these are gateway drugs. You're actually doing, uh, playing the Kinnahan's game here. And even, even if you're regulating it, they will gateway on to, to worse, worse drugs. Secondly, you're conferring a level of approval. Like if we had smoking again, would you legalize it? I don't know. And therefore people would say it's okay to take it because it's not a criminal offense. First thing about this report. In the space of about 40 years, there's very few public servants have actually impressed me. My former Secretary General of the Department of Agriculture was superb, Michael Dowling. Met a few CEOs in local government in Wexford where I was standing. Paul Reid is right up there with one of the best. I have called the COVID cover-up, slated uh, the inquiry in terms of slating Neffet and slated, slating the people in the Department of Health. I cannot speak highly enough about Paul Reid. I saw him in Fingal Council. 
I've seen him just the way he gets people on the ground on his side, the way he listens, his leadership style. He went through the sh- mother of all shit shows, which was COVID on top of the cyber attack. And the reality is it, it probably burnt him out somewhat. He was commuting from Carrie Conchan. So first of all, if Paul Reed says this is a good idea, you have me sort of at hello. So secondly, I think this is actually the lowest hanging fruit of this whole issue of legalization, supply and so on. It is just saying if you have a drug addict in Finglas and is 14 years of age, how do you treat that person? Do you put them into a revolving door of criminal justice, juvenile justice, or do you treat it as a health problem? And I actually think we should do this. I actually think, they, they as you rightly said, the more challenging things that are more controversial. But to me, this is actually the right thing yeah, to do. It's a sensible to, approach to, to drug harm. And to give these yeah. people hope because they will die if they stay on the route they're on. Yeah. So we'll see what happens though because there may even be elements within the government who mightn't actually want to go down the decriminalisation route. That's the biggest story of but, the week. But hold on, they will actually get cover from the fact that the Citizens' Assembly, this is what the interesting thing about the Citizens' Assembly is though, it, that it is giving a little bit of cover for the government to deal with controversial issues. So anything... But it allows a constructive media which they can be, be discussed but the as opposed to making them a political football. True, but what also happened with the hearings and drug use is it's actually interesting if you look at all the people who made presentations sort of the experts who are distrusted now by a lot of people, but as I mentioned, people in health services, doctors, psychiatrists, uh, the Gardaí, they were all expressing more caution, whereas the other people who are the people on the assembly just seem to be dealing more with the reality of the situation, the reality of what they see in life in Ireland. And people use drugs and we've got to find a way to deal with the downsides of when that happens. Before we go. In the yeah. real world, which operate, which is the elections, right? Uh, a lot of the selection conventions for Europe are being held first week of February. Uh, and this is starting to, there was a poll out this week of who are going to be our 14 MEPs. Now, actually, it was done by the European Council on Foreign Relations, who don't know the difference between people for profit <laughs> and social democrats and independents and so on, and, and Claire Daly. But some interesting things. Uh, Fianna Fáil, I think, will get three seats. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, Barry Andrews, the least likely. Barry Cowan, certain Billy Kelleher sense. This actual poll said that Fianna Fáil would get significantly less votes than Fine Gael, who are down 8%. Uh, and, and actually, Fianna Fáil would get three seats, but Fine Gael would get two, which m- speaks to the problem of Mairead McGuinness. You know, Mairead McGuinness not standing creates a complete Whole sorry, in, where will Finnegal get the two seats? Well, 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 sorry. First of all, Sean Kelly is certain to get elected. And sorry, a, a name to so note. You, okay, without sounding ageist, he's not quite as old as Joe Biden or Donald Trump, but he's well into his seventies. He has Sh- the J sewn up in Munster. I thought you was one of the worst goalkeepers that. in the history of Cork football. <laughs> would know that he has the J sewn up. I know that, but and that's, also, that's, not, my, that's not my sorry, question. Kerry sewn up, and because Deirdre Clune isn't standing, he has Finnegal sewn up. At, so, that, at that age, should you be retiring from active politics? What age is that? What age is he? Seventy-two, I think. Okay, well, put it like this. Good luck to him. I'll give you a name that you haven't heard of. Who's going to be an MEP in the next election in the Ireland South? Senator Paul Gavin is going to be from Limerick, and he is going to be elected a Sinn Féin MEP. Sinn Féin have been quite clever. They've gone for a one-candidate strategy. We spoke about Michelle Geldenew. But this is starting to happen. And Lynn Boylan will get her seat back in Dublin. She will. And the interesting 
uh, kind of thing is Breedsmith. Because uh, why would Breedsmith not be standing in the door? I actually interviewed her recently. And like, she's as fiery and as feisty. She's always given out about me. But you remember back but in the day. But you get on very well, well though, don't well, you? Well, like this, we slag each other and it works well for both of us. But the, the point about it is this. She sees through the pantomime. Uh, I think she is very electable. And that I Saint think Clare Daly said. Yeah, that's that's the interesting thing. So I'm I'm really fascinated about so Kieran Cuff, it could be Kieran Cuff's seat, but I think she has a chance. But these, sorry, these what, poll, what about what about your fellow county man, Mick Wallace? Yeah, he'll get elected. Do you think so? Yeah, I do I do I do think he'd get elected. Don't mind what I say. The first thing you look for in an MEP, name recognition. He still has it. Mick's a boyo. Okay, we will leave it there and we'll see if your predictions work out. I wonder how much money you're going to be putting on those closer to the date. Uh, that is the fifth episode of Path to Power. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe so that the next episode comes up automatically you on your subscribe? feed. You press a button okay. on the app, basically. And that app might be Spotify, it might be your Apple podcast app, or you can go to But you can access them online. What's the difference between a subscriber and just accessing it online? Because it comes up automatically for you in your feed. So it'll drop into you and you'll be reminded that it's there. I knew there was a reason you were paid the big bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please recommend to a friend as well if you have liked it. So until the next week, from me, Matt Cooper. And me, Ivan, goodbye.